Seize Your Mind, the podcast about soccer, mental toughness, and life. Today's guest is Brian Dunseth. Brian, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Appreciate the time. Man, I'm very honored to have you here and excited for this conversation. Yeah, me too. Me too. Let's get cracking. What are we going to talk about? All right. We're going to talk about soccer, mental toughness, and life. Let's start with how did you fall in love with soccer in the beginning? Um, so my, my mom married my stepdad. I was about five years old, and he kind of gave me my first soccer ball. And I still actually have the picture of me sitting across the street from our house at my elementary school, and I was just holding my little black and white soccer ball. And it was just my outlet. It was my freedom. And every morning I'd wake up, I'd jump on my bike, I'd hold my ball in one hand, I'd kind of cruise, hit the sidewalk, and I'd go over, and they had these huge walls. Um, and it was, it was just like a, like a kickback wall. And so I was across the street for hours, and it was like the only thing that, you know, I, I hated being inside the house. I hated being in front of the television. I just wanted freedom. I wanted fresh air. I was gone the first chance I got. And I can't tell you how many times my mom would be standing at the sidewalk in front of our house screaming at me like come on home you got to come home for lunch and I, ha I wouldn't even have known it was a few hours so yeah those are those are kind of my first memories of falling in love uh playing for the upland lightning bolts in aso playing for that? the eagle the upland lightning bolts it was our aso jerseys were like white and yellow i had white uh cleats on and that was my very first soccer team uh, the upland lightning bolts and that was just from that moment on, um, I loved every sport, but there was always something a little bit different, a little bit special about soccer. So obviously soccer isn't the most, you know, known sport during that time. Um, usually it's someone from, from England or someone that has a friend that plays it. Like what was, what was that like? Yeah. So it was, uh, so after I played two years of ASO, which is kind of like everybody plays, you know, there, there was no real pressure. Um, I tried out for a club team and the club team was called Upland Celtic and it was the 1977 Upland Celtic. So we're Upland Celtic 77. And when we were about 10, 11 years old, uh, we were looking for a new coach and there was a, a coach that lived in the city below us in Ontario. Um, and I didn't know him. They just said, hey, this guy Clay's going to come, and I think he's going to be our new coach. So Clay Coyman, who started the 1994 World Cup game against Switzerland at the uh, uh, Silverdome in Detroit, Michigan, he was our coach. So up rolls Clay, this, like, this Dutch kind of American surfer god in his VW bus, and he rolls out, and he's got the curls in the back, and he kind of pops out, and all the moms, their jaws dropped, and Clay was our coach. So Clay, at the time, he was playing for the California Heat. He was playing for the LA Lasers and the MISL, the indoor league here in the United States back in the day. Um, and he ended up, we ended up going to Europe. We won the state cup. We, we won basically everything that you could win as a bunch of 12-year-olds. And then he ended up signing with Juarez Cobras in Mexico and then went to Cruz Azul and became the captain, the first American captain at Cruz Azul. And so he was always kind of that, that one he was my role model. He was everything that I wanted to be. You know, he, he, was, he was this kid who grew up in Southern California, right in the city below me, um, kind of had to work his way through the different levels and, and made it to the highest level in Liga Mekis and then at the World Cup. And it was just like everything that I wanted to be. Um, so, yeah, it was Clay. And then a little side well, note down the, the road. Followed, was he, 
Yeah, it was the blueprint. And by the way, down the road, when I turned pro in 1997, I actually got to play against Clay in Major League Soccer. And at the time, he was with the Tampa Bay Mutiny, and I was with uh, the New England Revolution. And I actually got to mark him. Like, I got to mark him on corners, and he marked me on corners. And so it was this really crazy moment that, you know, you go back 10 years earlier. I was only 20 at the time when I turned pro in MLS, which now sounds old. But back then, I was by far the youngest player. And it was like, here's this moment where it's like, I got to play against my idol at the highest level in the United States. And so it was, uh, it was really cool. What was that like marking him? Did y'all joke around a lot? And... Oh, he, he was like, I'm, he, he rolled up on me and I was like laughing because we'd already like said our hellos and like gave hugs and whatever in pregame. And like when I walked up, you know, he's walking up for the corner and you kind of meet the guy that you're supposed to mark uh, at the top of the 18. And by the way, I loved marking guys. I learned this from Clay. And <laughs> my teammate was Alexi Lalas. And so like I would always work with the big guys because I loved the challenge of like, being super physical and grabbing and pushing and like thumbs in the kidneys and like into the riblets and like moving them around and all, all like the, the dark arts of the game that nobody <laughs> likes to talk about. And so when he came up, he goes, Oh, you're marking me. And I go, yeah, I want you. And I, as soon as he came up, I put my thumb into his rib and he was like, Oh, okay. And he's like, so then it was like, no, no longer like, coach kid player it was like oh you're gonna challenge me you know it's like the first time like a kid takes on his dad you know like you start messing around it's like that moment where you're like bop and your dad looks at you and you're like uh-oh it was kind of like one of those moments i created like, a monster yeah this is gonna be fun so yeah that was that was the moment that's cool that's cool okay so your first club team was when you were um the celtic you said and then what was uh, high school like for you? So I went to, uh, uh, at the time, let me kind of paint the picture. It was the mid-90s. So there was a lot of drugs. There was a lot of gang stuff. There was a lot of stuff happening in Southern California. We just kind of, in the midst of high school, you had the riots. Everything was kind of happening and kind of popping off. And it was difficult, man. It was uh, in kind of our region. I remember being in junior high, and there was like a huge drug raid at the high school. And like a ton of kids were arrested um, and it was, it wasn't dangerous. I mean, I had a ton of friends that went to the, to the local high school in Upland and it was no problem, but, um, I had an opportunity to go play at the Catholic high school, Damien. It was all guys. Um, and so all boys Catholic school kind of gave me, uh, like this, this kind of safety net, this opportunity to like, there's no fights, there's no girls to fight over. There's no girls to impress during the day. So it was just all about school. And then it was about sports and, uh, went to Damien High School, and and it was at a time where I grew I grew up as an attacking player. I you know like we all when we when we turn pro, everyone kind of like moves back, right? Like the forwards will become midfielders, midfielders become defenders, and it was kind of that tra transformation. But back then, it was I was kind of like a number ten. I was a midfielder, like I could play forward. And so back then, I played with a guy Joey Franchino in high school. He ended up going pro. We both played together at college. And it was kind of uh, us running the show. And so that to Damien, Damien to Cal State Fullerton. And then after, you know, two quick seasons at Fullerton, uh, I was given the opportunity to join the under-20 national team. Um, and that's when I left to term, I left college to turn pro. What was it like playing for the national team, that sense of honor wearing that jersey? 
It was uh, it was wild. So there there was so I had a teammate named Joey DiGiamarino at Cal State Fullerton. We had grown up kind of playing against each other our entire same age, same like we were always battling, and we became teammates at Cal State Fullerton. Well, he got called into the under twenty World Cup team, and I remember he came back to Cal State Fullerton and he walked onto campus. He was actually my roommate, but I hadn't seen him when he got back from from camp. And I was so jealous. I was so envious that he got called in. And it just made me want to work that, that, that much harder. And then when I saw him walk in with this, he had this Nike sweatshirt on. And it had the little the, the swoosh. And it had the crest. And I was like, oh, hell no. And I love it. He's still my, it, it, to this day, we're still close. But I was like, I got to make that. Like, I, I got to do something. I got to figure out a way. And inadvertently, he did help me because we were at a UCLA tournament and we were doing really well. And one of the national team coaches were there to watch Joey, to give an update to the head coach. And so when he had come back, I was so jealous. I was running stadiums and anyone who's ever been to Cal state Fullerton, it's a huge like cavernous it's soccer because they lost their football team in the mid nineties, but it's like this huge stadium and it's like cement steps. And I would just do laps and I'd go on the field, and I'd be left foot, right foot. I saw Marcelo Balboa training one day. He could ping a ball with his left foot the same way he could it with his right foot. So then I went, took the ball to the side net, and I was just trying to find the same motion, you know, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. And I, and I have a little bit of OCD anyways, so it's like this little bit of a rhythm to try to, like, build my confidence, build, you know, my technical ability. I was always really proficient with the ball at my feet, but I wanted to be able to do my left foot, what I could do with my right foot. Fast forward to the UCLA tournament. I think I had that goal and two assists against like an Oregon State or something. And in that game was the coach. It was uh, Glenn Myernick, Mooch Myernick. God rest his soul, one of the best people. He was the assistant for Bruce Arena at the Olympic team in 1996. And he was going to take the Colorado Rapids head job in 1996, the first year in MLS. And he was watching um, a bunch of players. And I caught his eye. I ended up being called into the under 20 national team. We were getting ready to go to the under 20 world cup in Malaysia. And I just remember that first phone call. I thought it was a joke. They were like, um, Hey, can I speak to Brian? And I was like, yeah, this is Brian. Who's this? And they're like, I forget who was calling. I think it was Eric Leakowski, some guy. Uh, this the is back in the time that you had the house phones. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, they, there was messages and like, if you were lucky, you pull it off the, you know, pull it off the wall. You had the long cord, all that stuff. Um, and yeah, that, I thought it was a joke and I couldn't believe it. And I didn't know who to call. I didn't know who to talk to. You know, I didn't know, like, am I supposed to tell the coach? Am I not supposed to tell the coach? I, I, I had no idea. And I just remember we, we drove down to, uh, we drove down to the Olympic training center in Chula Vista because that's where all the soccer teams at the time were being based out of. And I just remember going through the, the first gates and like expecting to be turned away. <laughs> because like, oh, it's a joke. Like, no, nah, man, you're not on the list. And I just remember driving in and like meeting everybody for the first time and like walking up and like your gears there. And it's like, you had all these new Nike Tiempo prototypes with like your size and like all of your clothes fit and they had your number and you had bags on it. And it was like, it was like Christmas. It was like football Christmas of like Nike US gear. And uh, 
I just remember like pulling up my socks and I, and I had a certain way that I did everything for training. Like I just had like a rhythm and I had to do it that right way. And that was my confidence. And I knew I get my touches on the ball and I like had to juggle a certain way and had to touch, you know, all these little things. And that like got me ready for the very first training session. It was just like, Holy crap, man. Like what, like a moment. This is like um, an incredible moment. All the awards or the accolades or the state championships or, you know, winning state cup or being named CIF player, all those things like now it didn't matter because now it was like, Oh, national team. And so, yeah, that, that was the moment where I was like, Holy crap, I'm here. Like, don't screw this up. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I want to go back to what you're talking about. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Um, I know I, as a player personally, when I had a horrible left foot and well, I'll, I have two horrible feet <laughs> first started, but uh, eventually I got better. We got really good with my right, but my left, it would, it would always be something like my left's horrible. I know I can do it with my right foot. And so I wouldn't practice my left and therefore it would just get worse. And mm-hmm. like, what would you advice would you say for players who like, you know, when you're in that moment, you, you know, you're, you're, you rely on your right foot, you know, you can go with the right foot, but the better option would be if you had a left. So it's, it's funny you bring this up because I'm in the midst of teaching this to my two boys. I got, I got roped into coaching. I didn't want to coach. I never wanted to coach. And now I got roped into coaching and I've got my 10 year old and my eight year old play on the same team. I've I've kind of brought my eight year old up to two ages because super athletic, and I wanted him to learn how to use his body a little bit more and kind of be able to bang with the big boys because from 15 to 19, I played up three years because I wanted to, to physically learn how to manipulate my body uh, because I knew there's always going to be someone bigger, faster, and stronger than me. So technically, I learned growing up in Southern California um, and, and a majority of the teams that I played with you had a Hispanic dominance inside of that group of players. And so I always kind of learned, like, let the ball, let the ball play, let the ball play, one or two touch, one and two touch. So my mindset has always been one and two touch. So if I could do with my left foot what I could do with my right foot, then I could technically be competent enough to then understand the spaces and the small spaces. And so it's funny that you bring up left foot, right foot, because I have a little goal that my boys have in the front yard and like, we'll be in the front yard. Like we'll be passing around little triangle passing around. And just two days ago, I actually showed them. I was like, kick the ball at me as hard as you want. And I'm going to show you right foot and left foot. And I just showed quickly how I could hit a ball with the outside of my right foot or the inside of my left foot. I could manipulate the ball based on where my feet were planted with either feet without having to turn my body. I could just kind of swing my leg one way or another. And so what I was trying to teach them is your biggest weakness becomes your strength in a lot of ways. And your strength becomes your weakness. Because as you said, if you're just dominant, only the lefties can play one side, one foot, right? The, the, the left-footed players that can ping a ball and dime people up that are just so special, they don't need a right foot. Like Lionel Messi, he can do things with his left foot because he's so proficient and dominant, right? He doesn't even really need his right foot, even though he's incredible with his right foot too. I was trying to show the boys that your weakness is your dominance with one foot because then you miss opportunities. And whether it's shaping up the ball to hit a first-time ball, whether it's the first touch that then can't take you to your left foot because then you've got to adjust your hips and take two choppy steps to then hit with your right foot, 
I was like, you're losing time. You're losing speed. You're losing options. And so we spent like two hours in the front yard. And what I'll do now is when we're shooting or we're, we're, we're taking penalties or we're trying to do top bends or we're juggling, I make them do one, you know, one right foot, one left foot or two right foot, one left foot, because I want them to have the confidence. But then I, I keep challenging them. Try to think about the feeling that you have with the right foot when you cleanly strike a ball and you don't even feel it. And it's just laces and you can just hit it as hard and as, as accurately as possible. Now try to mimic that same feeling with your left foot. And if you can create that same feeling where your hips shape up and your foot plants and it just feels a little bit of awkwardness and then all of a sudden you have a little bit more confidence, a little bit more strength, a little bit more power, a little bit more accuracy. Um, I was like, then say a guy comes in and defends you to your right foot. What do you do? You take your first touch away with your left foot and then you're out of trouble. And say, if a guy comes in hard on your left, you take your first touch with your right away from trouble. And I was like trying to teach them how to create space, but it was all based on learning how to feel comfortable with both feet. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, what do you do to teach your, your boys that you're coaching now uh, about being more confident? Mm, so, uh, <laughs> and what worked for you? Yeah. So confidence for me was, God, now I'm going to think back. I haven't thought about this stuff forever. Confidence was always a clean first touch. And I think as I kind of grew little by little, it was always like a general awareness of how many people were at the game. And whether it was, you know, just parents when you're playing club ball or whether you get to a state championship and where, you know, all, all four sides of the field were just packed with people, getting into a stadium where you could feel kind of the presence. And it was funny. I've played in, in, the, in, in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena in front of like 60, 70,000 people. And that becomes like a hum. And you just like don't even know. You know people are there, but it's just so big. Like it, it, you can't even feel it. I would actually get more nervous playing in front of like 15 to 20,000 people than I would 60 to 70,000 people. And, I, and it never like, I never found a reason for that. Um, but it was like, it was almost like when you had more people, it was like, well, just a ton of people here. Who cares anymore? Uh, but I think what, with the confidence, the confidence comes with repetition. The confidence comes with being comfortable. The, the confidence comes with understanding that even if you're having a really poor game, there's still ways to overcome kind of that, that the egotistical side of, oh, I'm not playing well. And, oh, I'm not playing well can be with work. Got kids that are just trying to play the game and trying to learn to and fall in love with it. Can you, can you say that part again? We, uh, my, the connection yeah. kind of wobbled there. Yeah, no problem. Which, which part do you want? So um, you, uh, you said when you're not playing well. Okay. So what I always learned with, if, if there's days where I'm not playing well, that, that I've given a ball away, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable in possession, I feel like I'm getting closed down too quick, I always knew I could overcome that with effort and work rate and effort and competition and just laying it all on the line, giving it my best. Because there's going to be days where you're just not that good. There's going to be days when you come up against an opponent that's so much better than you, it's causing you so many problems, that the one thing you can control is your effort and your effort of running, your effort of closing down speed, your effort of, of competition. And I think that's one thing that I learned. And what I'm trying to transmit to the kids, 
I got roped into coaching a rec team and a bunch of the kids are first time players. And so little by little, I tried to implement the technical side with the understanding of the tactical side, because these kids didn't even understand the tactics. They didn't understand the formation. They didn't understand shape. And so, uh, you know, little by little, we started putting us all together. They were getting killed getting hammered like seven, nothing, 10, one, all of it. And I kept trying to tell them every single game, I don't care about the score. Are you guys having fun? And so I tried to empower them every single time with even before the game. All right. What do we want to be better at? What, what, what can we work on today? And I'd go around the group and everyone would say something like, Oh, we should keep our shape or, Oh, we should be more confident in asking for the ball or, Oh, we should try to switch the pass from one side of the field to the other when too many, you know, too many players are there. And then at halftime, same idea. All right, what can we be better at? Oh, we got to be smarter with the ball. Oh, we can't play the ball under pressure. So like, all these, I tried to empower them to give them solutions to try to win. Um, because let's be honest, you know, kids at that age, they don't really fail with consequences. It's kind of an environment where they can fail and learn from it. And I wanted to empower them to understand that, Failing doesn't always mean head down. God, I suck today. Failing can mean, hey, this, was a, this is a stepping stone. We learned something today because you can really only learn things about the game while you're playing. So, you know, solve problems, look for solutions, and then compete and try, you know, try to figure out ways to, to win. So little by little, I kept telling them, I don't care about the, I don't care about the score because I, I would listen to them. Man, we're getting killed. I don't care. I don't care. Are you having fun? We're just out here to play. Let's enjoy the game. Let's fall in love with the game. What, how can we be better? And so it took about a year, like two seasons, and they finally won their first game. And it was like seven, six. They won their first game. We probably lost total of like 25 games. And so they won their first game. And it was like the joy of winning. And so after the game, right, I don't say anything. I say, guys, guess what? I don't care about winning. And they all smiled because they knew that it was like a consistency in kind of the mantra and in the, the, the conversations that we have that, you know, it's just about the game. Did you have fun today? What did you have fun? Well, we won. Yeah. Okay, cool. You won, but why, why did you win? And so then they started to talk, Oh, we made this decision. We did this correctly. Oh, we could, I was like, okay, so what can we be better at? And even in the midst of winning, I wanted to teach them that there's never a perfect game in soccer. They're, they're never, ever is a perfect game in soccer. There's always something that you could be better at. And so we did it in, in outdoor league. We did it in indoor league. I put them in club format. I had them play two years older and they were getting demolished and they finally won their first game after their second season. And so like all of these little things, it was like a controlled environment for them to lose and to fail and then to figure out kind of these these incremental steps of how can we find solutions to succeed and it was it was fun for me like once I was away from the team like I started crying I was so happy for the kids but I couldn't show that if that makes sense because I didn't want them to think that it was just about winning because you'll get pummeled man I can't tell you how many times I lost games where I was like what the what's going on like I, I've always, like, I feel like I've always won. And now all of a sudden we're just losing. And how do I get out of that funk? And it was like me going back in time. Okay. How can I control myself within the collective of, uh, of, of trying to succeed? Man, soccer has so many correlations to just life and like everything sure. you're just talking about can relate to so many things like in business and 
Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons I love the game because you can mirror life so much. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and I can't even begin to tell you how many how many times the adversity of the game itself has prepared me for life after soccer. Um, because I know, listen, I I I truly truly recognize uh, how unbelievably fortunate I've been. And still within my, like the arc of my career, I've still come up, come up short with personal goals. Like I never made a world cup roster. I'd been in us national team camps a lot, but I, I never recorded a, a real cap um, for, I can't tell you how many times I was up at the substitutes bench and about ready to come on for a game. And then all of a sudden someone got hurt and the coach is like, Bruce Arena's like, Hey, Dunseth, come on back and take a seat. And I'm like, um, but all of those, everything that I've gone through, the adversity that I had as a player on the field and being traded or being cut or being released or moving to a different country to play soccer, it was all kind of like a, I, I use the correlation for me, it was like a train. I was on, I was on my, I was on my tracks. I was cruising through different places. People would get on, people would get off. And I was always looking for a new location. And it was never about just the game. It was about life off the field as well to that. I mean, I craved culture. I craved identity. I craved language. I I wanted to, I I was, my life's always been like a chameleon. Um, Growing up in Southern California, I have a gay father who lived in San Francisco and uh, is HIV positive. So I kind of grew up in, in two different cultures of like Southern California and San Francisco and going through the, the, the AIDS epidemic and, and watching all of this in real time when I was in high school and then the game itself. And, you know, it, it set me up perfectly for life after the game where, you know, all of a sudden you find out, Hey, you're never going to earn a paycheck to play soccer again. And all right, we're not doctors. We're not lawyers. You know, who are we? You know, everything's been taken away that you've worked for your entire life, having to reset, having to figure out who you are. And oh, by the way, if you're starting a family, how are you going to provide for said family? Um, you know, all these learning lessons really set me up mentally for the kind of obstacles and hurdles I've had to overcome after retiring from the game. I completely relate with that part because as I told you before, I was in a car accident when I was 24 and have never played soccer since. And so, like, my sense of identity, because, like, mm-hmm. soccer was everything to me, 24-7. So, like, my sense of identity was just ripped, and I was just lost for the longer, longest time. Like, who am I now? Mm-hmm. So. And that's, and that's the toughest part, right, is, is I was fortunate to play for 10 years professionally. But at the same time, when I look back, it's like a flash, right? It's like a, it's like a flash of time. And over the course of time, you, you know, you kind of pick up injuries, you pick up long-term injuries and whether for me, it was like a broken back, um, something that I deal with today or, or ripped shoulders or having surgeries, or, um, I had six major concussions throughout the course of my career when concussions, you know, you look back now and Taylor Twelman's done an incredible job really, um, using his soapbox to, to promote concussion awareness and how important it is because back in the day it was like the mentality was I got to get back on the field and whether I had a bum ankle or I had a hernia issue or my back was messed up or it was like you know the I was coming out of a concussion it was all of those things was tough you got to be tough you could are you you okay yeah let's go no problem and whether that was taken 
you never showed weakness because if you showed weakness, guys couldn't rely on you. And if guys couldn't rely on you, that meant the coach wouldn't rely on you. And if the coach didn't rely on you, then that meant you weren't playing. And that meant then financially you were, you were a target because how much money you are making, if you're not a starter, you're not justifying the money that you're bringing in. So all of these kind of circumstances you think about as you look back and it's, it's just a different time. Like 2020, in 2020, there's so many things that we would not do right now that we did back then, you know, because you, you just did everything that you had to do. And I can, I can distinctly remember so many different times in, in my career where guys had the game taken away from them in a heartbeat. And it was almost like, whoa, like, oh, man, like, you're my boy. But like, I can't be too close to that because, you know, I got to just focus and I got to be my best, my, my best version of me. And I'm sorry that that happened, but like, that's too close to home. And little by little, you start to recognize that, you know, over the course of your career, as you get kind of towards the end, like, man, if the game's gone, like, who am I? What am I? How do I define myself? Because then, as you said, there's that day where you're no longer the soccer player. You're just the person. And I think that was one of the hardest things for me was to my friends, to my family, to everybody around, to my former teammates, I was, all, I was always Dunny. Like I was always the soccer player. I was, I was oh, where, where are you at? You in Sweden? Are you traveling the world with the national team? You in Boston? Like how's, this, how's the training coming along? Oh, where are you going to sign next? Now all of a sudden it was like, oh, like I'm sorry, man. And I'd be like, don't, don't feel sorry for me. Like, what do you mean you feel like, and you know, I felt sorry for myself and I think, and, and I don't know if you understand this, but you know, those days of depression where you can't, you know, you look back and you're like, man, I had everything. Like you don't realize how good you feel until you don't feel good anymore. Um, you know, those, those are some dark days that nobody wants to talk about. What advice would you give for someone who is just ending their professional career? Or college career um, to help deal with that. Yeah, I, I would. I would start with communicate. Communicate how you're feeling, because one of the things that I felt like was, and and thankfully I had my wife, who at the time was my fiance. I I kind of waited to, uh, to start a family until after my career for a bunch of different reasons. Um, cause I just didn't want to drag somebody through kind of the, the highs and lows of what a, a professional athlete's career looks like. Um, I would say communicate because the toughest thing for me was to explain to people the depths of my depression with trying to figure out who I was without the game and how I was going to financially provide for my family because as a professional athlete, I viewed myself as a number. I viewed myself as a paycheck. And the more successful that I was on the field would then coincide with how financially successful I was. And it was, you know, like those little incremental steps meant that these little incremental steps financially would match that. So when you're gone, when the game's gone, you know, I miss the locker room. I miss 5v2. I miss the banter. Like I miss busting chops. I miss the smell of the grass, fresh cut grass when the lights are on 
and you can kind of just, you know, the heat and humidity and fresh cut grass and, you know, feeling like if you're playing in, in LA, you could feel kind of like the, the salt from the ocean in the air at night. Like all of the, there's just like certain smells that'll like bring me back. I missed all that. I didn't have that anymore. And so I was trying to communicate with people, but I didn't know. Yeah. So, um, I lost you. Communicate. Okay. So when, when I was trying to communicate with friends or family members about how I was feeling, I, I had one conversation where someone said to me like, Oh, come on, bro. Like you, you played all over the world. And then I realized how people viewed me. I realized that in a, in my mind, I almost didn't have the right to complain about anything. I didn't have the right to feel bad for myself. I didn't have the right to miss the game in the way that I missed the game in somebody else's view because I never had a real job. I never finished college. I didn't have to quote unquote live real life. You're spoiled. I didn't have to kind of, yeah, I, I, I didn't struggle. Even though I struggled in my kind of own little realm, I didn't struggle the way everybody else struggled. And so I, I always felt like I wasn't afforded the opportunity to communicate and complain about what I was going through because people would just be like, dude, screw you. You played all over the place. You got to play in Olympics. You got to go to a world cup in Malaysia. Like you got to, you got to play for the national team. You got to play in Germany and France and train at Glasgow Rangers and be at Bayer Leverkusen. And like, you got to play in Sweden. Like we never got those experiences. Yeah. So they're like, you, you made it, man. You're, you're living the life and they don't see the fact that, yeah, but now I'm not anymore. And yeah. And so it's funny. My, my, my wife and I went to our, like my, my best friend's wedding in the fall and it was the first time my wife had really been around my group of friends, like from Southern California. And so she, and it was like guys and girls, like our whole little crew that we grew up with. And like, I'd tell her stories and she'd be like, oh, that's cool. But this was like the first time she got to like ask questions. And so I'm sitting there and my wife's asking all of my friends questions and they're giving their perspective of who I was and the decisions that I made. And it was, I'll tell you what, it was surreal. It was surreal. I was like a ghost in the room. Like they were talking like I had died. And they were like, oh, dude, you remember when he did this? And I'm like, I'm right here. Like, what are you guys doing? But it was, it was interesting to hear them talk about what I didn't think was a sacrifice at the time. And now I look back, kind of the decisions I would make. And they would be like, oh, well, we had this house party. And he'd be like, oh, I have to go home. It's 10 o'clock. I got to train in the morning. Or like, hey, man, let's drink. Let's go out to the bars. Let's do this. And like, ah, oh, sorry, man, I got training in the morning. I got to go or I got to go work out. Or, hey, like we're going to start at two. And I, and I guess I would say I'll be there at four because I'm just finishing out my second workout. And so it made me realize, and it wasn't that I was sacrificing. I was just so singularly focused on putting myself in this situation where if the opportunity presented itself, I was prepared. I was ready to execute. Um, and that goes back to that moment where Glenn Myrnick was watching at, you know, at the, the UCLA soccer tournament. That was everything I'd done in the past had led to that one moment. And that one moment was the thing that got me to major league soccer and got me to the U S under 20 national team. It's like the, the iceberg analogy. People just see like, Oh, you just went to that one practice or whatever. And that that's was your lucky day, but they don't see all the work that gets you ready for that one. That yeah. One and, and to that point, I mean, 
I can remember whether it was like, uh, see, this is where the obsessive compulsive part comes in <laughs> because like the right foot, left foot thing. I would also do stuff like even in commercials, I would, I would jump on the floor and do push-ups. Like I would do 15 push-ups each commercial during a, during like a, an hour of television or do like, you know, 25 sit-ups. And it was in my mind, it was, what can I do that would give me an advantage over everybody else? And like, while everyone's watching TV, like maybe I can get a little bit stronger or even to the point where like I'd go out to the bars with my friends, I'd have two beers and I'd feel so guilty. We, we, we called it Dante Washington, who I played with in Columbus. They, it was a joke. I, they called me two Amstel Dunnies. And it was the two Amstel beers. I would only drink two bottles of beer if I went out. I'd only have two beers. And that was just, I couldn't, I couldn't break that threshold. And even then, I would like, in the off season, I'd go home. It'd be like one or two in the morning. I would go for a run just to like get it out of my system and just think like, oh, I can just take advantage of this time. When everyone else is sleeping, I can sneak out. I can go for a three-mile run. I can be back before anyone knows it. And then I've, you know, that, and that, that was my mindset. That was kind of the obsessive compulsive. Can I do squats? Can I, can I go juggle? You know, can I, I had a, I had a two-foot wall in the backyard and we had like half cement, half grass. And I would like variation of touches and range and, and, and the different feel of the grass. And would I hit it with my laces if I was on the grass or would I just, you know, look right foot left, all of these little things. Now listening to them talk at the wedding, it was, it kind of reinforced why I had the opportunity and what wasn't a sacrifice to me was like a sacrifice to all of my group of friends. Gotcha. Gotcha. When you just talked about sneaking out to go run, it just makes you think of like a crack addict that's hiding a, a bad habit yeah. or something. Yeah. And it was, it was weird though, because I could, you know, the only other person I know that did this was Tony Beltran who played for Real Salt Lake uh, here in major league soccer. Um, and he penned this letter as his retirement. Um, and I, and I never knew it and his parents didn't even know it, but he would sneak out in junior high and high school and go running through the neighborhood in the middle of the night and pretend to be kind of like a superhero. And every night was like a different person. And it resonated with me because it brought back so many memories of like, yeah, it, it was crazy. Like, what if something happened? Like, what if I got hit by a car? Like, what if I rolled my ankle? Like what, what if someone tried to abduct me? Like all of those things, like, what happened? Where'd he go? You know? And I, and I, we had this creaky front door and I stopped going out the front door because it was a single level house in California. I'd open up the window. I'd take the screen out of the window and I'd literally step out the window and then close the window so I could come back in. And that was like my way around getting through, getting around the squeaky door because God forbid our, my parents' dogs woke up and started going nuts. So these were all like the little things. Like well, your I friends remember. are sneaking out of the house to go to parties. Yeah. You're sneaking out of the house to go run. Yeah. And, and see my first, and my first interaction, one night I stayed out one night I drank in high school and I got drunk and I don't recommend this for anybody. And like, I've had this conversation with my kids, but what I haven't told them is that one night, the next day I had a game at 7am and I felt horrible. It was disgusting how I felt. And I was remember I was at mid, it was at the midline uh, midway half line. I get the ball and I don't even want to run. I'm just sick to my stomach. I feel disgusted. I pick my head up. I see the goalkeeper off his line. I chip him from 50 yards. 
And I, like my buddy score? comes up to me. I, my, yeah, I'd scored, chipped him, hit the net. My buddy looks at me and goes, man, maybe you should drink every night. I was like, nope, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. And so one of my favorite goals of all time is because I was so sick because I drank and I felt disgusting. I didn't want to run anymore. That I was just like, oh, screw this. Instead of actually playing the game, I'll just hit a ball. And I ended up chipping him. So my, my buddies and I still story. joke about it to this day. That's a great story. Tell me real quick about your Zomorano shirt in the background there. Uh, so, yeah, this is, uh, this is from the bronze medal match at the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, Australia. And it was the last time the United States has got out of the groups. It's the only time the United States have gotten out of the group stage. And uh, this one is uh, Bam Bam Zamorano. And former Inter Milan Real Madrid legend. He was the captain. He was one of the overage players for Chile. And a, a side story to this, we were both captains. And I think, I don't know if you can see, but right there after the final whistle, we're hugging each other. And so that's his jersey. I gave him my jersey. And that was the jersey that I wore in the first half, the red one. Um, side note to that story, coming into the Olympics, I had strained my adductor. And before the very first game um, against Czech Republic, no, was it Czech Republic or was it? Uh, anyways, I can't remember who the first game. I had to go to the coach and tell him that I wasn't ready. I was afraid that if I turned and looked to sprint, it was actually against Cameroon, and it was Samuel Eto was playing for Cameroon. Wow! And and as you know, like Samuel Eto, if you go back, like his burst was incredible, his speed was phenomenal, and I was so. It wasn't. I was nervous about the the matchup. I felt comfortable in matching up. I was nervous that if I turned and sprinted, that I would tear my groin, like I'd be out, and so. I remember thinking over and over how I want, how bad I wanted to play. This was the Olympics. It's the culmination of four years of preparation. But if I turned and I popped it and it was in the opening 20, 30 minutes, if I cost my team a substitution in the first half, how selfish would I be if I put my team at threat? And so I, had, I went up to the coach, Clive Charles, God rest his soul. I named my uh, second son, Micah Clive, in, in his honor. Um, he was like my father. Um, he was an incredible influence in my life. I, I was just crying. And I was like, I got to take myself out. I, I, I can't risk it. And so by the time I'd fully recovered, it was for the bronze medal match. We had just lost to Spain for a chance to go to the gold medal match. Um, so that was my first game. And uh, I hit the crossbar hit the crossbar on the post with my left foot off a corner. They went back down the other way. They got a penalty, uh, and they ended up winning. Um, and after the words, Zamorano had some incredible stuff to say. I, I think I got like an 8 out of 10 rating from all of like the magazines, which was incredible. And, uh, yeah, it stunk after the game. I had to come home and wash it and then uh, yeah, hung it up. But it's just one of those, one of those moments where I can – walking out wearing the captain's armband at Sydney bronze medal match on the line. And just like hearing the national anthem, the FIFA anthems and the national anthems. And you can feel the, the armband on your, on your arm and you feel the badge on your chest. And you're just like, wow. Like outside of playing in a world cup, I, I couldn't imagine a, a better moment in life outside of birth of my kids and, and getting married, obviously. Let's talk about preparation for a match like that preparation, mental preparation for matches like that. What goes through your head? What are some things you learned over the years that like, man, I wish I'd have been doing this 10 years ago. Mm. Um, 
dietary first and foremost what i put in my body the fuel that i put in my body um how heading up to if i had a game on on saturday from wednesday on i was really dialed in on what i was recovery shakes protein shakes how you know the rhythm of my meals um i i i i could eat the same thing every single day for the rest of my life that's how kind of the rhythm that i've always found myself in um sleep patterns, taking naps, uh, the timing of when I got to bed, you know, I would put pillows underneath my legs and sleep on my back to kind of keep my legs elevated just to make sure I was getting the blood flow and everything that I needed. Um, and, and then the day that, and the night before the game, you know, closing my eyes and just thinking about the matchups, who I was going to mark, who was the danger points, different areas of the field. I would just start to mentally imagine myself playing balls and marking guys. And I would kind of go through the visuals. Um, something I, I, I learned from a couple different psychologists, sports psychologists over the years that things that worked for me, um, cause there's a bunch of stuff they'd throw out. And these are kind of the, the things that worked for me. And then the day, of the day of the game, I would have make waffles, cinnamon waffles, put peanut butter on them. Um, I would go wash my car. I would then eat chicken and, and um, spaghetti for lunch and have a certain amount. I drink a certain amount of water. Like I kind of knew where my body was at in terms of, of getting the liquids in. And then as I would go to the game, knew no matter what I was wearing, as I kind of changed, I had this kind of rhythm. I had certain underwear I'd wear. I'd put my shorts on, then I put my t-shirt on. I had under socks, like little ankle socks. If I had to get my ankles taped, there was a certain way I did it. Put my had my lucky shin guards. I wore the same shin guards throughout my entire career. They stank and were falling. They were falling apart at the end of my career. Um, but right foot, left foot, you know, every sock, sock, shin guard, shin guard, big sock, big sock. Uh, you know, boots, boots, tying boots, tying boots, making sure they were knotted a certain way. Um, I just kind of had this. I found, I found a, and it, and it wasn't that. I was superstitious. I guess looking back, I, I kind of was, but there was, there was something about doing something with a rhythm that made me comfortable with then stepping on the field. I knew I was ready to play. And those were kind of little things that I would do. To me, it sounds like it, it brought comfort to know, like, at least this I have 100% control over. Yeah. And it was a preparation. It really was a preparation. And it was like over the years, there was just certain ways that I found how I felt comfortable to be like in the zone, I guess. That, that was like my zone. And so to, to kind of ramp myself up, looking at it, it was psychologically I was getting ready to go to battle. And I think all those little things, you know, from, you know, the music I would listen to in the car, kind of getting me ready, getting, get, getting me hyped up, you know. Did you um, have a soundtrack, the same soundtrack every time? or There, there, was, there was a... A certain, no, it wasn't the same one because over the years it would kind of evolve, but I would always travel with my music. You know, like I, <laughs> I was, I came across all, my parents just moved up from Southern California to Salt Lake City uh, a couple of weeks ago and they brought me all of these different things. And I'm going through all these like nine boxes. I found like a garbage pail kid collection. I found my baseball collection. I found all of my national team jerseys from like the very first one to, uh, to, to my very last one all of these like little trinkets. I've just found like my placard from the Olympics, like my official, like get you into everything. The, the, you know, the, the training center to 
the housing set, all of this. And it was, it was funny as I'm going through all this stuff, I'm recognizing that there was kind of a, a rhythm and, and, and a preparation to all of this. And um, yeah, it's, it, it was kind of wild to put myself back this weekend through all of this. I kind of had to shut my door. I turned on some music and I realized like I found my CD collection and I had these two big CD, like, you know, the, you, you'd open them up and you flip the, the CDs. Binders. Yeah. So I, I would care. I, I took those with, I started to remember how heavy my backpack was because I would take my two binders worth of CDs with me. And even when I went and I stayed four months at Glasgow Rangers and three months at Bayer Leverkusen, 97, 98, I always had my music with me because my music was kind of like, it, 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 it just relaxed me. Like it kept me sane in a time where there was no internet. Right. So, um, now if I listen to music, cause we, we do a show on Sirius XM, uh, Tony Miola and I on channel 157 soccer show called counterattack, uh, we'll ask for certain music and I will come back from the breaks. And I'll be like, yo, where Tony, where's that take you to? You know, boys are back in town. Where's it? And you'd be like, Oh man, that takes me back to Kearney, New Jersey. And like, so we'll, we'll ask for certain music. And to me, yeah, certain music that I listened to over the years, I could tell you what car I was driving, what the weather was like. I could tell you what team I was playing for. Um, and those are all kind of like happy memories to me. That's great. That's great. Um, last but not least, let's talk about your career now, post-soccer. How'd you figure out what you wanted to get into and how's that going? So in 2006, uh, my back just, I couldn't do, I, I have spondylosis, spondylolisthesis, where my L4, L5, um, I just don't have, I don't have a disc. Uh, basically over the years, the disc kind of broke the two like teeth on your spine between L4 and L5 and that disc is gone. Just been grinding over the years. And so I could still play on the weekends, but I couldn't train every day. I felt like I was like leaning over, like I was starting to like creak over. Um, and so the game, the, it was time, game was gone. And I felt comfortable. I, I was missing it, but I felt comfortable stepping away. So at the time, my fiance had just come down to Southern California, ended my career with the Galaxy, and her dad was sick. And there was a couple opportunities, and we just decided, like, I didn't want to take her away from her family in the midst of kind of little by little losing her father. And I, want, I, didn't, want, I didn't want to have the regret of her not spending those final months with her father and with her family. So we stayed in Salt Lake. Uh, we got married. We settled down. The first week I got back, Real Salt Lake was playing a game um, up at Rice Eccles Stadium. And I was, I, I, I was just caught in this, like, who am I? What am I? What do I want to do next? And I'd been selling real estate off and on throughout my career, like helping friends and teammates and all that stuff. And I was dabbling in that, but I, I wasn't sure if that's what I wanted to be, if that's what I wanted to go into full time, because I just missed the game. So I just decided egotistically, I gave myself like two days of feeling sorry for myself. And then it was like, all right, let's go. Let's move on. And so there was a game. And I told my wife, I want to go to the game. Like, let's go to, let's go watch RSL play. And she's like, are you sure? Are you ready for that? Like, that's going to be a, like a tough pill to swallow. And I was like, if I don't do it now, it's just going to get worse. So I'd rather like hit it on and then I'll just deal with the emotions and then like, I'll figure it out. So as we're driving to the game, I stumbled upon the pregame radio show that they had, the build-up to the match. And one of the things I had learned throughout my time as with the national team was like how to break games down. 
And so Jay Hoffman, 97 uh, World Cup team going to Malaysia, under 20 World Cup team. He gave us a little like five by seven card. And he's like, go out, I watch this game. The US was playing partisan Belgrade in a friendly in the Olympic Training Center in San Diego. And he's like, I want you to write down the formations. I want you to tell me the tactics. I want you to tell me the strengths and weaknesses. I want right foot proficient, left foot proficient, you know, speed weakness, speed strength. And so I started in my mind because of that breaking down games. And so each game, that was kind of a part of my preparation. I'd watch a game and I'd try to find weaknesses, data points that I could kind of collect in my memory. So fast forward to this. I'm listening to the pregame show and I know the teams that are playing and I know the team, the, the players that are playing. And I'm like, listening to the guy talking, the two guys talking, I'm like, you're missing this matchup. You're missing that matchup. You're not talking about this. You're not talking about that. You're not giving the tools to the listeners and to the fans to educate them, to look for certain things. They're going to go watch a game. They're going to miss these little nuances. And like, you know, on the right-hand side, the left back versus the right winger, that's a crucial matchup. Oh, the central midfielder against the defensive midfielder, you know, not a lot of speed for the defensive midfielder. And technically, you know, what this guy does, if you take away his right foot, he's in trouble. Like all of these things I'm thinking about. And so I was disappointed as I'm listening to pregame. It was so, it was so like top level, surface level. It didn't have anything of substance. So when I got to the game, I watched the game. Afterwards, I still had a ton of friends, obviously at the club. And I saw one of the guys on the show. The, the radio show. And so it was a club, it was a club PR guy and the guy on the radio show. And I was like, Hey, I was like, I listened to the radio show on the way in. And they're like, Oh yeah. What'd you think? And I was like, just, this is, I was busting balls. And if you like, if you get to know me, like, you know, it wasn't malicious. It was just me busting balls. It's like banter. I was like, Oh, well let me know when you want someone who knows what they're talking about to come on the show. And it was like, when they start laughing, they're like, hey, Dunny, like, F you, man. Like, what are you doing? And, but it was like, it was our relationship. But it was like, oh, wait, are you serious? And I was like, of course I'm serious. And like, well, <laughs> we can't pay you. And I was like, well, it, it, it doesn't matter if you pay me. Like, you're missing out on an opportunity to educate. And they're like, really? And I, you do it? And I was like, yeah, I'll be here next week. And they're like, oh, okay. So literally from that first week that I went back, I decided like, well, it's an opportunity to do something. At least I can stay involved in the game. And like, at least I can help teach the public because this is, you know, in, in Utah and Salt Lake city, like what Mormonism is to Salt Lake city, Catholicism is to Rome. You know, you have all these return missionaries that are coming out that are coming back from, you know, Chile and Spain and South America, you know, coming from all over falling in love with the game because, you know, they're going to these soccer mad environments that now all of a sudden they have a taste for it. Um, and so that pre and post game radio show turned into being the color analyst on the radio, then turned into becoming the color analyst on the TV side for Real Salt Lake. And that's what now for 14 years. Yeah. 14 years of calling games for Real Salt Lake, which turned into Fox sports, one NBC sports, NBC, uh, ESPN, ABC, uh, Sirius XM every day with Tony Miola. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it kind of set me up for this kind of soccer conversation life afterwards where I can call a game and I can be interactive with fans during a game and they'll tweet back and forth at me and they'll tell me stupid things to say, like say meow from Super Troopers. And I'll be like, you know, write meow, Tony Beltran, if he's not watching how high he is up off the field, you know, a guy can get in behind him. And so, yeah, it's just, it's fun. It's, uh, it's, 
it's more than what I ever thought. I never thought that a single ball could give me um, everything in life that I, I've, I've been fortunate to have right now. Even speaking with you, like speaking to you, it's not without a ball from when I'm five, six years old. So yeah, that's kind of set me up for that second phase of life. Me just busting balls uh, to one of my buddies after, you know, sacking up and going to a game and trying to get over the disappointment of not being pro anymore. That is awesome. That's a great place for us to uh, come to a stop to this podcast. Um, thank you, Brian, so much. It's been so entertaining to have you on here. Um, I've learned a lot and laughed a lot. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Any Anytime you need me, uh, I'm, I'm up for story time. That's what we've been doing every day. Tony Miola and I have been uh, dragging back all the uh, the big names from the past. And it's so much fun just when you hear kind of the backside of people's stories, you know, cause we always see the names and the faces. We see the names on the back of the jerseys and we kind of, kind of know with social media uh, about players nowadays, but everybody's got an incredible story. And I, I absolutely hope that kind of people look to find out what has motivated them both off and off the field that has given them the opportunity to play at whatever level they find themselves playing at. Awesome. Awesome. Tell Tony, I'm going to have him on next. Oh yeah. No problem. He'll love it. All right, Brian, you have a good rest of your day. Yeah, you as well. Thanks for, thanks for reaching out. That was fun. All right. See ya.